Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. It's Feel Good Wednesday. Let me move my studio here a little bit. This is Who's This Podcast For? You know my name by now. Hope you're all having a great week. Uh, good halfway point of the week. Like I say all the time, uh, just keep pushing, keep grinding, keep striving. You're almost to the weekend, but don't stop working there. You know, we always got something we could be doing. Uh, it's getting cooler. Every morning I wake up, it's a little bit cooler and cooler. 50-some degrees here in our nice mountains of Tennessee uh, this morning. But it keeps getting back up to like 79 or 80. Soon as it can just start staying between 57 and like 75, somewhere in there. We we know that we're in fall. Fall will start, I believe, this Saturday, the 23rd. And today is the 20th, so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, yep. Saturday would be officially the first day of fall. Can't wait. Beautiful time of year. But anyway, we're going to hop right in. I got a few videos I want to watch today. Um, I know one for certain. And I believe I know the second one. And then the third will kind of just depend on what we want to do at that point. Even though I have an idea of one. But, you know, we'll see when we get to it. Uh, All coming from my guy movie-wise. If you've been here the past few weeks. You know, I've been pushing the movie-wise bandwagon over on YouTube. I think the guy's making some of the best stuff on YouTube when it comes to movie and film and all that kind of stuff. And um, I just appreciate the guy's sentiments and his work a lot. A matter of fact, the last one could be, yeah, I don't know about that. I don't know about that one yet. Hold on, let me see something real quick. Because I have, like I said, I have two pretty much locked in right then there's a third that i'm not quite certain on that i might want to do but i don't know that might need to be a whole episode to itself let me go over to it real quick yeah i don't, I don't know might need to save that one movie wise has such an extensive list of things you can't go wrong picking anything from him uh, in my opinion, everything he does is solid, if not great. So I, I wouldn't feel bad picking any of it. But there are certain things. Maybe I want to put these two videos together that I'm looking at. They're both kind of longer. So I think that could be good conversations to have. So I'll save those two for now. Then the third one, I guess, is the one I watched yesterday. I'll just throw that onto the back. And we'll do that. We'll just keep it strictly movies. Because the other two... They're about movies, but they kind of go to a different place. And I kind of want those to be their own episode. So probably next week, we're going to dive into both of those, talk about those extensively. And uh, you'll know what it is when when we get to it next week. But movie-wise, again, is my guy. Shout out to him. Uh, go on over to the YouTube channel. Check out some of the stuff on your own. But today, we're going to start with the stuff of great actors. What makes a great performance? This is his newest video. He dropped it five days ago. I've watched it already, but I want to watch it with you. Oh, so we're going to skip these ads here. And we're going to start this off. Again, this is what makes a great performance about movie-wise on YouTube. And it says, um, a video essay that seeks to unpack the mysteries of a great performance. What's it all about? We'll go through a three-minute scene from Giant, where James Dean elevates the art of acting to new heights. Then we'll move to Glengarry Glenn Ross, where Al Pacino brings David Mamet's words to life through unbelievably rich line delivery and body language. 
Did you ever notice how much he plays around with his leads? I'll talk about a tiny detail of Joe Pesci's performance in Goodfellas, then about an even tinier detail in Henry Fonda's performance in Jezebel. So let's get into this. Five, four, three, two, one, now. I hope y'all can hear this. He said the one element of filmmaking that's ever so elusive to him is acting. And I agree. Um, I I know a great performance when I see one, but I can't tell you why most of the time. I can't tell you uh, what this person is doing or not doing that makes it great because, you know, go too overboard in, in your acting and it comes off as hokey and uh, played out. But go too subtle. And it's like you're not doing anything. Um, and then there's a vast ocean in between those two extremes. But, you know, I, I, I always wonder, I guess, um, authenticity comes through, I guess. But uh, I've never been able to really categorize what exactly is great acting either. Which is why I think the video is so great. I can categorize what I consider great directing and what I consider great writing, things of that nature. But acting, I don't, I don't know. It kind of just has to capture you, I guess, and... Um, even though I'm sure that there are lessons and things that can tell you uh, who's a great actor and who isn't or why this performance is great, but I don't know if I could ever put it into words what made a performance great, except things like it moved me and it felt authentic and stuff like that, which I guess is it's a guessing game like most of this other stuff we talk about, but I guess I just have more of a firm grasp on other elements of filmmaking and acting the same as movie was but he's going to try to give some great performances here as i might i can't think of the analysis of a performance as something that is not and i dread the word subjective everyone went crazy in love with angela bassett and wakanda forever and i thought she used too much mouth and too many dramatic pauses it is always So see right there, he detailed some opinions where he thought Angela Bassett and Wakanda Forever was bad. Uh, I didn't know she was bad. I don't think she deserved to be nominated for all the Oscars or nominated for the Oscar and winning so many awards for it. I didn't get anything from virtually any performance in that movie. Like, I don't think anything was that great. I don't think that movie's good either, but that's a whole other conversation. But 
Then he talks about um, he thought Austin Butler was great, but his friend thought he was terrible and fake. I didn't see Elvis, or he thought Elvis, Austin Butler and Elvis. And I didn't see Elvis, but I had heard that he was great, but I don't know. I hadn't seen it. Then he says, everybody loves Daniel Day-Lewis, so much so that he makes other great actors seem average. But then, uh, was his name, Jim or Phil Emerson, thought thinks he overacts in his movie. So, you know, it, it, it's all subjective. And he said that that's, I guess, part of his problem. He can't find an objectively an objective truth to what is good acting. So it's just hard to quantify what it actually is because it's so dependent on the person. But now he's going to give us some examples uh, in his opinion. To pinpoint explanations why and see if we can get something like a great performance compass or something. I make you laugh. I'm here to fucking amuse you. Why not start off with a giant? James Dean. First of all, before we get to the James D performance, love the blocking in this scene. This is by George Stevens, a guy that you just don't hear talked about because everybody's talking about David Fincher so much or any of these other yahoos from the past 20 to 30 years. And guys like George Stevens have been completely wiped away from American uh, history in terms of like what they did with film. Um, and this shot in uh, Giant with James Dean. It's, it's so perfect and uh, better than most. Then I would say pretty much everything that comes out today. Every single thing. And I hope you're watching the video so you can see it yourself. But, um, yeah, and, and to think about James Dean, the guy was so young when he died and he had only done three movies. Giant with George Stevens. Um, was it East of Eden? Was that with Elliot Kazan? I think that is. And then uh, Rebel Without a Cause, it's got Nicholas Ray. Let me look it up real quick. James Dean, young man. He died. He was born on February 8th, 1931 and died on September 30th, 1955. He was 24 years old. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. But yeah, let's see. It's only three of them. So, Rebel Without a Cause. East of Eden, Giant, 1955, and for a rebel without a cause in East of Eden, and Giant came out in 1956. Uh, let's see here. How y'all not gonna tell me who directed this? Even though I know, yeah, Nicholas Ray. Uh, they live by night, bigger than life, in a lonely place. He's a great director. Uh, East of Eden, I do believe that this was Elliot Kazan. Yes, it was uh, written by John Steinbeck. And then Giant, like I said, was George Stevens. Story by Edna Ferber. Uh, nominated for Academy Award for Best Actor in the Leading Role, Best Directing from Warner Brothers. So Giant's a big movie. Uh, no pun intended. But anyway, yeah, James Dean, three movies, worked with three great directors, and then was gone that quick. He had a great. Uh, career ahead of him and was the modicum of cool for the 50s and uh it's gone and i want to do people my age or younger even know james dean or know anything about him uh or know how big he was for the time period and what he was about to do i mean the dude was already oscar nominated uh 24 years old and i don't know how many times maybe for all three i feel like i need to look that up we know that he was nominated for. Was he nominated for Rebel Without a Cause? Let me see here. 
Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, Best Motion Picture Story. So he was not nominated for Rebel Without a Cause. Was he nominated for East of Eden? Let's see. Uh, Supporting. Was he supporting or was he main in this? Let's go down and see. Yeah, it was a posthumous nomination. So I guess he had died already. Um, But he was nominated for Best Actor in East of Eden. And then Giant, we know that he was uh, nominated for Best Actor. So the two-time nominee for Best Actor, three movies, and wow, what a career. Okay, let's jump back into it. Why not start off with a giant? James Dean, giant. In this scene here, he gives a powerhouse of a performance I'll always hold as the perfect example of something only an acting genius can do. Context, James Dean's character Jeff has just inherited a small batch of land from Rock Hudson's dead sister. Now Hudson and his partners want to buy that land back from Jeff for twice its value. But no matter how much they offer, Jeff has no intention of selling rather keep a worthless burden just to spite them. Because Frank Doyle there later on, he doesn't own it yet. A single shot that goes on a little over three minutes, James Dean barely says a word and still acts everyone under the table. Just observe him. She wanted to give you something. The way he sits lying down, the way he plays with his rope, the way he looks from one person to the other, how he raises his eyebrows, smiles, fidgets, Check this out. Jeff knows full well Rock Hudson always hated him. When this guy lies that Hudson wants what's best for Jeff, Dean gives the smallest of reactions to state, Yeah, sure. He wants to see to it that you get something really worthwhile. Well, now. This is 0% an actor acting. This is a real person. We pause it here. Um, you know, they say, whenever you ask the actor what is acting, all they say is acting is reacting. But enacting is listening. As much as it is about the monologues and the dialogues and the emoting and the emotion, it's probably more so just about reacting. Somebody says something to you, and based on what they say, your response. You know, that's acting. Samuel Jackson has said that. Many actors have said that, that you know, it's, it's really just listening. If you become a great listener, or if you are a great listener, you can be a great actor. Because all acting is is listening and then responding. And then not necessarily just with words, with anything that comes over you in that moment. Or whatever that scene requires, that's acting. And in this scene that they're showing from Giant, James Dean is doing a lot of reacting. Very subtly, but also um, it's noticeable. And I can see why somebody said this is a great performance because it is a scene because he's doing so much without saying anything at all but you constantly understand exactly what he is. He's reacting. He's responding with no dialogue and um, he's listening. And they say being a great actor is being a great listener. And that's pretty much it. Existing. He's not waiting for his cue. He is simply in the moment. He looks genuine and spontaneous as if there wasn't one studied action coming from his body. Everything's just happening. No wonder he only made three films and became a legend. <laughs> and I did 
mention the way he speaks. So no wonder he made three films and became a legend. He only made three movies, like I said. Work with three great directors, and his his legacy was set. We don't know what he would have done after, how he would have ended up, but we know for those three, I mean, look at him. He's James Dean. He, he was that guy, and I, I need to see all three of them. Um, and, I, and, I, and I will, and I desperately want to. Got an ad. Now here we go. To go from the complete opposite end of a spectrum to the other side. Let's talk about Al Pacino, shall we? Great ass! Al Pacino gets some fire for his high energy persona. And you got your head all the way up it! But when it fits the role as well as it did in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, you got yourself a performance for the ages. Fuck you, you owe me the car. See? So, Glengarry Glenn Ross, by all accounts, is a great movie by David Mamet. I haven't seen it, though I want to, but they say this is Al Pacino, you know, was this post-sin of a woman, or maybe right around that time, when he's just going for the fire. You know, he, sin of a woman, Glengarry Glenn Ross, later on, The Insider, where he's just going for it every single scene. Gone were the days of The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, when he was a bit more mannered. Or uh, Panic at Needle Park. Um, this guy is manic and loud and boisterous. And um, I often, I think Al Pacino is amazing. He's one of the best actors ever. But I only know him, I would like to only know him from The Godfather. I've seen Heat. I need to watch it again. He's doing a lot, but he has moments where he's grounded. But I prefer younger, manic, stoic uh, Al Pacino. Than this version you're gonna see if you're watching the video in Glen Glen Gary Glen Ross, but I can understand the appeal. I'm not saying it's bad, or even if it's overacting. I just think he's doing a lot, and sometimes it can tip the scales too much. From in my opinion, but I can understand somebody liking it, and he's gonna give reasons why. This film, I get fascinated by how much personality he infuses into every gesture and every word. Not every line, every single word. Your power falls is all comes out of your mouth and fire. How fucked up you are! This scene in particular where he verbally vaporizes. Sorry for the language. Seem to be speaking a memorized text. He's just making it up on the fly, and the fact he's 
fucking Shiva handed this guy a million dollars, told him sign the deal. He wouldn't sign. The inflection he puts in sign the deal. Sign the deal. He's got so much personality, he can rub some off on Shiva. Fucking Shiva handed this guy a million dollars, told him sign the deal. He wouldn't sign the deal. Everything he does with his body language seems to come instant by instant. You cannot separate his actions from his words. I gotta argue with you. The defeat and dropping of his hands is inseparable from I gotta argue with you. I gotta argue with you. I gotta knock heads with the cops. I'm busting my balls under third to dead beats. That weighty motion of his head is inseparable from busting my balls. I'm busting my balls. Lines and actions are the same thing for Pacino. I gotta knock heads with the cops. He is like a maestro conducting the words of the writer. He is doing a lot. Now he's about to go through how how often Al Pacino moves his hands in this scene, um, and everything he's doing with his hands, as well as the words and the inflection, you know how he says certain words. But now he's going to show the hands. Let's go. Now we're going to Joe Pesci and Goodfellas. A very a smaller moment, but this and the next part with Henry Fonda and Jezebel make all the difference, especially the Henry Fonda Jezebel one. I, I need to see that movie. It's by William Wilder, I believe. Another great bastion of American cinema that has been swept under the rug for newer people, but uh, that moment is great. And this one is great as well. Thank you. He wants the name of a movie. Hey, what's that movie that blew up on me? Which one? He 
is given it, and Robert De Niro guesses an obviously wrong second option. It's such a clear mistake, likely a joke, that it's not even worth addressing. So Pesci simply interrupts his flow, gives that intonation, and continues like It's such a real-life moment. Your friend pulls your leg, and you figure it's not even worth the conversation. Just the briefest of the regions. It's not in the script, because Scorsese prefers to let actors improvise. So this is definitely an ad-lib, and I wish more movies had moments that feel so natural like this one. Anyone thinks I'm making too much of a small thing? Here's an even smaller one. William Wyler's Jezebel has another one of my favorite acting moments. Harry Fonda's uptight gentleman of a character is breaking up with Betty Davis. As coldly as he can, she finds it insulting and slaps him. His reaction? He clenches his jaw. I find this tiny thing chilling. There's so much. He just a simple jaw clench. a great video coming back welcome back now moving on love that video um really good examples of what makes great acting to him kind of gives you a bit of a um you know a guide if you needed one to kind of Show yourself what great acting is to you. Um, clearly, if you already know that, then you don't need it. But, you know, a little help never hurts. Now, moving on to another video that is, I believe, roughly the same amount of time as the one we just saw. It's called Storytelling's Most Useful Type of Scene. Party time. So let's dive on into this one. Oh, got to get rid of these ads. They're not paying me none, so I can't have them. All right, let's read a little bit of the description. A video essay on the most narratively narratively powerful type of sequence or scene that you will find in a movie, book, play, or what you will, the celebration. Weddings, funerals, birthdays, parties, and balls. They are the stuff of great writing because they give a story the chance to gather very imp every important character and let them interact. 
for a while under the auspice of important themes such as love and death. Through their behavior and reactions, we get glimpses of their different personalities. Characters who would normally never meet have long-awaited encounters. Celebrations can set the world of the movie or establish a particular time of happiness or lack thereof. Leon Tolstoy, War and Peace, Gustav Flaubert, Madame Bovary, William Shakespeare, Hamlet, Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, and that highly productive scribe, Anonymous, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, all knew it. As the screenwriting couples Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett and the other screenwriting couple, Bridget O'Connor and Peter Strawn. Through several examples, you'll learn why celebration sequences are so ubiquitous and infinitely useful. Seven out of ten episodes in Succession's final season were centered on some kind of event after all. Man, what a great final season. Maybe the best final season of a show ever. And we're going to have a Succession episode at some point, man. I don't know when, but it might be the greatest show of all time. Anyway, storytelling is the most useful type of scene. Let's jump into it. Again, this is movie-wise on YouTube. The excellently titled 1960 crime thriller The Bad Sleep Well by Akira Kurosawa opens with a remarkable wedding sequence. Present are all the major characters. More than that, we meet a group of pristinely blocked gossiping reporters providing convenient exposition about the guests, their backstories, and relationships to each other. This 20-minute opening is effective storytelling at its best. So much so, a young Francis Ford Coppola took it as an example and opened his little-known flick, The Godfather, with a wedding sequence of his own. Coppola's wedding is even more narratively efficient. We meet every important character and we learn about their personalities and priorities. There's love, sex, politics, showbiz, crime, the law, and the media. It's an entire society distilled into 26 minutes of film. What a great scene. This is the power of the endlessly useful collaboration sequences. Weddings, funerals, birthdays, parties and balls. Everyone who's anyone will be there. Narrative is beginning. Here's what you do. You take every single important player you have, you toss them into a social gathering stew, and you let them interact for a while. Plot and personality are bound to come out. Biggest large parties, and I like large parties. They're so intimate. Small parties, there isn't any privacy. In All About Eve, we have Bill's long birthday party sequence. Among the attendees are nine of the ten characters who have names in the film. Betty Davis interacts with every single one of them, and we have enough brilliantly written permutations to make the sequence work as a perfect little movie. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. The Deer Hunter opens with a long wedding sequence that teaches you everything you need to know about the players. There's fun, fighting, a wedding proposal, and drunken shenanigans. We even learn who is secretly in love with whom. After all, parties are ideal for furtive looks. And this sequence is especially handy to enhance the power of the story. The deer hunter spends its first hour with the joy of marriage and friendship. To make the somber war-born depression that follows even more depressing and somber. It's the last moment of happiness these characters will have maybe for the rest of their lives. So let it last. The only time every character will meet again is right there in the ending. Yet another celebration. 
everyone had it together, their separate sufferings, whoever was set together. That's an effective plot structure if I've ever seen one. Got it. It's perfect time to talk. Um, yeah, just speaking about how great uh, these party scenes can be, where it's just it's so efficient for storytelling. You get every single person in a um, room or house or event. So now you have people talking who maybe haven't talked, and that could be some great uh, combative dialogue if they are two opposing viewpoints or something, or a funeral where everybody has to see each other, just any kind of ball or dance or party or event, like just getting these people together. It almost always works, and it's hard to mess it up, as he's illustrating right now. Where we've gone through movies like The Deer Hunter, All About Eve, The Godfather, uh, Bad Sleeps Well, from Akira Kurosawa. Like, it just seems to work. You just put these people in a room together and watch it work. And he mentioned succession uh, before the thing happened, before the before this uh, episode happened. And, yeah, he's right. Like, most of the episodes of the final season were just excuses to get all of those people together. Like, like, like just seven out of the ten episodes were some type of event. It was a party, a wedding, funeral, you know, uh will reading whatever whatever have you like every single thing was just to get these people interacting with each other for what would be the last time unfortunately because but fortunate for that show because now it stands amongst the pantheon greats but anyway let's continue Spenny and alexander goes a similar course we begin the story with a wonderful colorful and lusty christmas party it's a cheery world you never want to leave <laughs> This is Fanny and Alexander by Ingmar Bergman. Days later, tragedy strikes and the title characters go through a world of hardship and languor. Luckily, there's a happy ending. Fanny and Alexander's stepdad is burned to a painful death and we close with yet another joyful family party. From happy together to sad apart to happy together again. Is necessary and not at all shameful? To take pleasure in this little world. All the great I agree. The power of a good celebration Within reason, obviously. Let me go back. I'm talking over it. Sorry, but I like the little saying he said. It is um, grateful and not at all shameful to take pleasure in this little world or something like that. It is necessary and not at all shameful to take pleasure in this little world. All the great writers in history knew the power of a good celebration sequence. In Tolstoy's War and Peace, where does Andre fall in love with Natasha? The lavish ball, of course. She looks back at me and smiles on the next turn. She'll be my wife. so tedious her only source for cheer is knowing there will be a ball in two weeks. Once it's done, she'll do nothing but dream of the next one. It's not that different with the Bennett girls in Pride and Prejudice. A ball is their chance to escape their ennui, meet new people, and maybe find a husband. The Green Knight decides to challenge a knight of the round table during a Christmas party. That is when you know everyone. Shout out to the Green Knight. Shakespeare opens Hamlet with a wedding party that also doubles as a funeral. 
with Wamos wishes and dropping eye with mirth and funeral and the dirge in their head. Bill is such a godlike writer, he gives you a celebration scene inside the celebration scene. My lord, I can see your father's funeral, bidding him a mocking fellow student, and it was to see my mother's wedding. Love and death in the same event. Indeed, my lord, I follow Cardinal. Dread, dread to ratio, a funeral baked, instant cold, they furnish talk of marriage tables. Thomas Mann opens his saga about a rich family's decline that would have roots with a luxurious dinner. Because it's all gonna be downhill from here, so where else to start but the very top? Gino Visconti learned well but opened his similarly themed The Damned with the Patriarch's birthday party. <laughs> But Visconti's most brilliant use of a celebration was in his adaptation of The Leopard. The novel deals with the end of the age of aristocracy as experienced by the Prince of Sully. The two final chapters deal with his death and the uneventful lives of his daughters three decades later. Visconti had a better idea. He took the antipenultimate chapter about a lavish ball and extended it to the film's last 15 minutes. This is a story about the death of lush and comfort after all. So what could be a more appropriate ending than diving into a beautifully decadent world of wealth just to say goodbye to it forever? That's one way to adapt right there. Mm -hmm. My boss specifically mentioned that I, I got ads. These ads are killing me. Also a bit of a lottery. 
as we realized by now, celebrations are often the only way to reunite characters who normally never meet. It would seem it takes a death to bring about a family reunion in this house. That's why there are so many films centered wholly on celebrations. If you think about it, a celebration is a time when everything achieves a new level of importance. The trivialities of day-to-day -day life are replaced by the greatness of important things. Religion, pleasure, friendship, love, and death. That's a perfect excuse to let emotions take center stage. For the first time in my life, I am truly, seriously, irretrievably When you place every player under the same roof, you also give yourself some help when it comes to writing character, because you gain the opportunity to show contrast. Since these people are facing the exact same events and problems, we learn how each individual will react in a different way. Is he gonna be playful or start a fight? Will he get emotional or let it off? Is he having fun or working? Who's flirting? Who's fighting? Who's moping about in the corner? And who is not even there? One thing that'll make this fight perfect knows that. I must say, I really felt quite distressed at not receiving an invitation. Full of witnesses, dramas, and subplots converging, parties are ideal spots to send a melodramatic message by, you know, a meeting version. You kill a king one step in the dark, you kill him where the whole court can watch him die. Just as he feels. Oh my gosh, that scene. The Red Wedding. Didn't even watch the show. And I know what that scene is. Everybody knows that scene. Storytelling most useful type of scene. The party. Somebody could die at it. Somebody could fall in love at it. Somebody could cheat on somebody at it. People can uh, conspire against someone else at it. Like Succession, season one, episode, was that six Prague? It's when uh, Kendall decides to take over the company from his family. And that was at a uh, bachelor party. The most useful type of scene. Storytelling. Most useful type of scene. Hey, I can't say I disagree. One more section. All right, we're back. Uh, like I said, I had a third video from Movie Wise that I was thinking about uh, going over. A bit shorter than the rest, even though I will pause a little bit more probably through this one than the last, but I told you, so we're going to do it. And again, there are two videos that I'm going to put together and come back to maybe next week. Uh, 
117, what about 18 minutes? What about 15 minutes? That'll be a good bulk. And that'll give us a lot to talk about. A little bit of a uh, preview for next week. Once has the, uh, this isn't the title of it, but it's don't be this guy is like a headline. And then the other headline is a man's got to do what a man's got to do. That's all I'm going to tell you about those two episodes. And then for the third one, today, we're going to do the one I watched yesterday. It's called There Are Only Two Types of Film Directing. What is Elamadam? Spelled E-L-A-M-I-D-A-M. What is Elamadam? There are only two types of film directing. Let's watch it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. All right, let's do it. Then after this, we're going to get up out of here. So he's going to divide film directing into seven distinct possible styles. Categories called classical, realistic, madcap, expressionistic, operatic, painterly, and encyclopedic. There's only two possibilities. Either the director makes himself invisible, or the director makes himself visible. interesting so a little bit of a history lesson that invisible style he's talking about a sobering style was very prevalent through the uh through the golden age they called it about 1927 to 67 even though it was before that as well during the silent era but basically like you said the camera's unobtrusive you're watching it um it's basically it's all happening there is no kind of pov from an outside source this is the story being told and it's told in the most objective way possible based on the characters and nothing else so very uh limited camera movement if any at all and um you know just nothing superfluous for the sake of and that was back during the days of what i considered the best time of framing blocking character movement camera uh direction all of those kind of things were at their height during then because they had some restraint so they knew when to to actually pull out a few different tricks now they just throw everything in the kitchen sink at you and nothing means anything because you see too much of it that's just my opinion and he's about to get to when this uh change happened in the 70s obviously that came from visible directing became more and more common, like fast cuts and a more constant use 
I hate fast cuts and I hate loathe using uh, mostly close ups, especially in something shot on scope. Meaning you have all of this space to show as much of the set or whatever as possible, and you're constantly fixating on close ups. I don't understand it. I hate it. It's probably the worst modern technique that uh, has been abused. And close-ups mean nothing anymore because that's all you see now. Um, sorry to interrupt. I, I just had to say that. I hate the fast cuts too, but the close-up thing is so grating to me. Some of these forward though, some flourishes that came from visible directing became more and more common, like fast cuts and a more constant use of close-ups. Nowadays, most films in the sober style have nothing to do with the classical era. They're faster, have too many... said... Most films today in a sober style, which still exists, have nothing to do with the classical era. They're faster, have too many angles, use music far more, and don't shy away from handheld camera work, which is the, uh, that's another thing, grinds my gears, handheld camera work. I loathe it so. Um, it was different in the 70s. They knew how to use it and to use it sparingly. Now they use it all the freaking time. And it has no weight to it. It means nothing anymore. And I and, and I just wish somebody would come along, maybe me, and just go right back to classical directing style and show people, oh, it can actually be this. Where blocking is important and framing and character uh, movement on the screen, as well as the uh, camera movement with the character. I just wish somebody would come back and show it and be like, oh, you can do this? And be like, yeah, they did it for like, 60 years before y'all started doing this other BS, but anyway. Persists, however, is that most directors are not invasive and tell their stories clearly. Now, let's talk about the opposite style. Uh-oh. The stylized style. I call it visible directing, stylized directing, eccentric directing, but my favorite name Elamadam. What is Elamadam? It's an acronym I made up that stands for Everybody Look at Me, I'm Directing a Movie. It's when the director grabs you by the throat. Everybody Look at Me, I'm Directing a Movie. As you look at all directing. <laughs> the story doesn't speak for itself. It is being led by a showy guy. Everything that is flashy applies to Elamadam. Expressionistic angles, Elamadam. Distorted or weird images, Elamadam. Euphoria season two is good. Hot take, if you will. I don't care what everybody says. Sorry, let me go back. He mentioned Euphoria, I had to say that. Oh. 
great point. It says, a lemon might feel like something that's new, but here's the truth about cinema. No matter what you can come up, come up with, no matter what original idea for a story or style your imagination might conceive, everything was already done in the 1920s. That's why I get frustrated with Bill Simmons and he'd be like, "Is this the first movie that?" No, it wasn't. Every uh, if you watch the rewatchable, which I like, it's a good podcast. Or if you listen to it, rather, every time a movie came out in the seventies or eighties, he always asks his co, his co-host Sean Fennessy and Chris Ryan, "Is this the first movie that did such and such?" And they'll always be like, "No," because Bill for movies, movies didn't start being good to him until like 1972 so everything before is like you just he just doesn't go back he doesn't have to but if you have a movie podcast where you're constantly trying to give credit to something that isn't that don't deserve it as being the first you probably should go back otherwise you sound like an imbecile and i don't think bill really minds that i gotta do listen to well a number of his podcasts over the years anyway yeah everything was created in the 20s and it's just been reused or repurposed or restructured to be something else. But as they say in the uh, like in the Bible, nothing new under the sun. Uh, everything's been here before, and that includes cinema. But it is a pet peeve of mine when people openly take from other people and put it into their work. Like if you're gonna do that, be subtle about it and change it. Like not just the exact same scene. Uh, I, I can't stand that, but it's people who grew up watching movies and loving them so much that they just want to make their version of that and or just make that or take a scene and put it into something that they're making. I don't like that. I'd like, I prefer you making, trying to make something new. And if that means having to watch lesser movies, so be it. That's why I don't really watch as much stuff now. Because I don't want it to impede my process. Like, I don't want to see something and then be like, oh, dang, now I'm constantly thinking about that and it's going to end up in my work. I want my thing to be completely my own. And if something already existed like it, I can honestly say I didn't even know it existed. So, yeah, great minds think alike. But that's just me. Obviously, Martin Scorsese and guys like PTA and them don't care. Cute Quentin Tarantino. It's something for me, though, because those guys back in the day, I don't think they were doing it. And if they were, they weren't doing it as much and as blatant. So I guess I'm trying to be more like them than th- these new these newer guys. As much as I love their work, I'm just saying. Exception was computer generated images. Said the only exception was computer generated images for obvious reasons. That wasn't back then. But obviously because computers didn't exist in the nineteen twenties. Filmmaking is a spectrum. 
nothing. He said some movies or most movies are 100% sober, but no movie is 100% eccentric. Meaning, Elamadam, everybody look at me, I'm directing a movie, as he calls it, is a tool to be used at the right time. Me, these days, I wouldn't mind a nice sober movie, but that's actually well crafted. You know, like they used to do back in the day. So, you see, the Elamadam approach can often be the absolute best strategy. With that said, let me now mention over directing is way too frequently the stuff of he said a lemadam can uh let me go back can often be the absolute best strategy i don't know about that but sure with that said let me now bash it thank you finally getting to the point of the video for me over directing is way too frequently the stuff of young directors trying to show off they don't know discretion so they'll shoehorn as many flourishes as they can to pass off as good filmmakers when you can see through it though you don't fight the problem is so many movie buffs can't see through it and all too often we find lists of best directors that downgrade the great names of classical cinema thank you let me go back Fine. the problem is so the problem many is so many movie buffs can't see through it Talking about how young directors don't know discretion, so they're shoehorning many flourishes in as they can to pass off as good filmmakers. And when you can see through it, you don't buy it. The problem is, so many movie buffs can't. And that's a very, very, very true statement because I go back and forth with my brother and others so many times about how I don't think many much of this stuff that's coming out now is good at all. Um, and it's not some old get off my lawn type thing because I'm 27. It can't be. <laughs> I was born in 1996, not 19, uh, not 1896. So it's like, I just don't see it. I, and I can see through what they're doing. And oftentimes they're not even doing anything um, worthy of my, you know, opinion on it anyway. It's kind of why I stopped reviewing the movies. I don't really see many new things. Um, I'm very selective now what I go to see. Y'all know for a while I was pretty much trying to go every weekend or every other weekend. Now I don't really go every month. Um because a lot of this stuff I'm not into, but it's because I can see through it, and a lot of movie buffs can't, and he's going to get to a very important distinction right here. See through it, and all too often we find lists of best directors that downgrade the great names of classical cinema, like Howard Hawks, William Wyler, John Huston, and Ernst Lubitsch. Yes, so often these lists that come out of the best directors ever, it it's always guys from like the like 70s up. Really, the 90s up. So, David Fincher, Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, Martin Scorsese, all these guys, and they're just throwing away guys like Howard Hawks and George Stevens and Ernst Lubitsch and John Houston, William Waller, Richard Brooks is a guy, and Alexander McKendrick, and, uh, you know, John Ford gets mentioned, but, you know, none of these guys get their due. Joseph L. Mankiewicz. You know, it's a guy I mention often, and uh, Billy Wilder is often mentioned, but not really on those type of lists. For guys like David Fincher, come on, get out of here. But it's because those guys, to them, don't have a style, whereas these other guys do, because all they do is superfluous camera movements, and that, and you think that's a style, and you think, well, uh, John Houston and Howard Hawks didn't move the camera, so they didn't really have a style, but they're framing and they're blocking. And how they told the stories was very much a style. 
And but back then you weren't trying to have a style. You're just trying to tell it in the best way possible. And those guys told him in the best way possible. Like Billy Wilder, probably the best director ever. And a lot of people there probably consider him not having a style. But let me let Movie Wise get through this. Then all too often we find lists of best directors that downgrade the great names of classical cinema, like Howard Hawks, William Wyler, John Huston, and Ernst Lubitsch. I'm very sorry, Contact. This is most embarrassing. But the lady who brought picture tonight is spreading communistic propaganda and powder. Give me another double brandy. In favor of recent filmmakers with gritty style. Like Wes Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, and Zack Snyder. The reason for this is Zach not Snyder. lack of taste. Actually, these are mostly good directors. The reason is when you are learning about cinema, the only way to recognize a director's style is when he goes illimited. Film books and lessons seldom teach you to notice blocking, timing, and other discrete traits. They teach you about tracking shots, montages, and what else sticks out. So when coming of age cinephiles need to pick their favorite filmmakers, they choose those that actually help them answer the question. So why is he your favorite director? It's no wonder man. Hit that again. So when coming of age cinephiles need to pick their favorite filmmakers, they choose those that actually help them answer the question. So why is he your favorite director? It's no wonder many flashy directors get more and more sober as they grow older. They're directing at least. Paul Thomas Anderson, David Fincher, and Guy Ritchie abandoned the excesses of their earlier careers. Even Edgar Wright seems to have himself under control now. On the other hand, Wes Anderson somehow doubled down on his idiosyncrasies, and his live-action films have never been better. Let me now show you the difference between good Elamidem and bad Elamidem. This is Alfred Hitchcock using camera movement to create suspense in Young and Innocent. The characters are looking for a killer, and all they know about him is he has a night twitch. So Hitchcock moves the camera around to show us anyone can be the killer. Before ending this wide shot as a super close-up of the killer we're looking for. Yes, it's showy, but it calls for your attention and pays you for it. You know that something important is coming, so you glue your eyes to the screen. Now here is David Fincher using camera movement to create suspense in Panic Room, while Jodie Foster's leaps, thieves are trying to break in. Not a big fan of Fincher. Um, this is something that's got me in a lot of hot water recently. Um, like I said, I don't care. But uh, I like some of his movies. I love Seven. You know, I used to like Gone Girl, but I'm like, eh. I don't know. So something about that is kind of moving me from that um, recently. Loved Social Network. You know, I'm, I, you know. I just go with the feelings. I just go with where I'm at at the moment. And right now, 
something about Fincher turns me off. I think when I found out that that whole Mank movie was fake black and white, fake, fake, fake that era of movies and everything, and he just faked it all. Used digital stuff, cinematography, and I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm off this guy. Like, don't do that movie if you're gonna do that. Like, it's a movie about the writer of Citizen Kane. If you're not making how they made it back then, but you're faking all of it using CGI and all this stuff, I'm not with you. Matter of fact, I think you're a hack. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's a bit rough, but I don't care. Again, uh, Finch is not one of my favorites. But anyway, that's our three. Thank you to Movie Wise for basically ushering in this episode, and he will do us all again probably next week. Uh, like I keep saying, eventually we're going to get back to the glow. Uh, not glow. The Love Season 3 uh watch along but been having fun just going through some videos of mine like been watching a lot of old school wrestling i might get back on net with y'all remember you should do that maybe watch some four horse some four horsemen promos some matches i've been really into the four horsemen rick flair Arn anderson tully blanchard ole anderson lex luger uh, uh what's his name jj oh my gosh why can't i think of his name man it's their manager. Um, I think his name is JJ. The Four Horsemen. Let me see here. I don't know why I can't think of this. And now they're not even showing me the freaking... James J. Dillon, J.J. Dillon. Yeah, goodness, I can't remember that. But, I, um, yeah, we might watch some promos of there, some matches. I've been really into that recently. I haven't been watching any modern wrestling, and honestly, I feel better and better each week about that. So I'm starting to wean myself off of all of it since CM Punk got fired from AEW. And, uh, and, that, and that should be the end of that company, hopefully, and which WWE will go away too, and we somehow get – a great studio wrestling program back like NWA of the 80s and the 70s. Hey, maybe I'll do it. Anyway, just talking out loud now. Thank you all for listening. Thank you all for being here. Have a good rest of your week. And, uh, yeah, next week we're going to dive into more movie-wise. Maybe you can find those um, two videos I was telling you about with the titles. Uh should be easy to find. It doesn't have that many videos, but if you're looking at it in depth, then you'll be able to watch them and know what we're going to talk about next week. If I don't forget, that is, um, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh, depending on who hears it, they might not like what I have to say, but that's okay. I don't care. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening. As always. Thank you all for listening. See you next time. Peace out.